The text for this morning's message is Hebrews 12, and it'll be the first 11 verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the glory was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as, they see, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you are such a good Father. You are a faithful Father. You make promises to your children and you keep those promises all the way to the end. You give birth to your family and you parent your family all the way until the day that we've grown up into full maturity. You're a very good Father. You're a very gracious God. Sometimes, Lord, you have to take the tip of the sword of your word and sting us, but that's only to heal us. And so I pray that our hearts would be open to your word today and that our minds would rejoice in the truth of your discipline today. Lord, you have come to do good to us, and I pray that we would let you do good to us. You have come to shape us into your image, and I pray that we would let you have your way in us. Oh Lord, let it not be that we hear the word of God preached today and meditate on the things that are said and then walk away and live just as we've been living without any kind of effect or change. Let that not happen. Let the word of God be powerful and rich in our midst today. Let the word of God expose things that need to be exposed and heal things that need to be healed and change things that need to be changed. Take your word today, Father, and build up your children Build up your church. Glorify your name, O God. Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered as you do your work through your spirit and by your word. Father, I love you so much. You've been so good to me this week as I have meditated on this passage. And I pray now that the things you have shown me, that I would articulate them well, Father, for the glory of your name and the good of your church. I pray this in faith and in joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, last week, beloved, we meditated together on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and those of you who were here will remember that we saw that Jesus called us to run a race by grace that's long and hard, but Jesus has not called us to run this race alone. And I showed you three specific ways in which the Lord has not left us alone. First of all, he's given us an enormous cloud of witnesses, people from the Old Testament times and New Testament times and throughout the history of the church, all of whom trusted in the faithfulness of God and found him to be faithful. And now they are shouting out with one voice and testifying to us that God can be trusted. 
They're telling us that if we believe in his promises, we will find him to be true. So the Lord has not left us alone, beloved. He's surrounded us with people who have already run this race, run it successfully by the grace of God, and found God to be faithful. Second thing is that God has given us one another. He hasn't called us to be individual athletes. He's called us to be a team. He's called us to bind together in heart and soul and mind and strength and to endure this race together. Jesus has not left us alone, beloved. We are gifts to one another. We're not just people who congregate in a room on a Sunday. We're gifts from Jesus to one another. We are the manifestation of grace into one another's lives. He has not left us alone. Praise be to his name. And mainly, above and beyond the witnesses and above and beyond each other, Jesus Christ has given us himself and he's promised us that he would finish this work all the way to the very day when he returns again. He has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. And then he said, behold, I am with you, my children. I am with you all the way to the end of the age. Beloved, there's no better news than to hear that Jesus Christ is with us. Amen. Many days when I'm praying for the worship service, I often ask the Lord for this or that result to come about. Maybe somebody would be saved. Maybe somebody's burden would be lifted. Maybe somebody would be healed. But mainly, week in and week out, the Lord will testify. I ask him over and over again, Jesus, just let us know that we have been in your presence. Let us know that we have been with you. If you're with us, man, we really don't need much of anything else because if you have Christ, you have everything. Now, the race that Jesus has called us to run might be defined like this. Our race is to know Jesus, to grow up in Jesus, and to go with Jesus into the world by faith together. This race is to know Christ, to grow in Christ, and to go with Christ into the world together by faith. It is a massive privilege, beloved, to run this race together with Christ, but as we begin to do so, we are soon forced to face a reality We are forced to face a significant problem, namely all of those weights and sins that keep us from running in the way that Jesus would have us run together. The weights and the sins in our lives complicate and interrupt our worship with God. It makes us hard to put him first. It makes makes it hard for us to fix our eyes upon him. It makes it hard for us to have affection for him above everything and in everything else. The weights and sins in our lives complicate and stagnate our growth in Christ and our growth together. The weights and sins in our lives complicate and impede us as we seek to join Jesus and go out to seek and save the lost. It is the weight and sin in our life that causes us to be apathetic about people who are going to hell in our city. It's the weight and sin in our lives that keeps us from risking saying something about Jesus in a conversation or going to our neighborhood or going to the poor or going to the guardian angels or going somewhere and bringing the love of Jesus somewhere. He's called us to run this race with him to to seek and save the lost, but our weight, our weights and our sins hold us back. They hold us down. I've said to you many times and I will say to you many more times if God gives me grace, that the life Jesus has called us to live is a very simple life. Don't complicate this. It's not complicated, but it is hard. And the reason it's hard is because of the weights and sins in our lives. Do you know that if there was not weight and sin in your life, life would not be hard at all? Every difficulty you face is traced back to weights and sins, every single one, either yours or those of others. But one way or another, it is the weight and sin in our lives that makes this race so difficult. So beloved, here is the first key idea for this day. I'll have more to say later, but here's a key idea I really want to stick in our brains. In order to run this race, we must fight our sin by grace. In order to run this race, we must fight our sin by grace. Imagine an Olympic runner who's just weighed down with all kinds of stuff. He's got suitcases on him. He's got some kind of hard hat. Maybe he's carrying a a bag of concrete, something like that. Just all this weight, and he's trying to run and win an Olympic race. Well, it's just not going to happen, right? In order to run fast, he's got to let go of this stuff. So the only way to run the race is to fight our sin by grace. We must struggle with the strength of Christ to put down those weights that are holding us back. And I told you last week, these weights, generally speaking, are not bad things. There are good things in our lives that are not sinful to be involved with, 
But in our case, they're distracting us from the great things. They're keeping us from running with Jesus to the extent that he really wants us to run. And we have to struggle with the strength of Christ to set those things down. And sometimes it's just flat hard, isn't it? Isn't it just hard sometimes to walk away from things that give you joy so that you can have a better joy? We must fight with the power of Christ to walk away from those sins which so sneakily surround us and entrap us. There are certain things that we just can't seem to get loose of, but together, as we fight together, Christ will allow us to walk away from what he has already taken away as we walk in Christian community and fix our eyes on Jesus. Beloved, if we're gonna run this race, we have to fight our sin by grace. There's no other way. If you don't feel like you're in a battle right now, you have to, you have to ask yourself the question, am I even in the race? Because this race Uh, requires this kind of struggle. So if you look at verse four now, the author says there that in this struggle against sin, though we've been through many battles in our lives, not one of us has resisted sin to the point of death. There isn't a person in this room or a person on the earth that has said no to sin all the way to the place where they had to make this choice. Either give in to this sin or you will be killed. Now, some have given their lives for Christ, but the point is, nobody has perfectly resisted their sin all the way to shedding their blood like Jesus did. As this relates to the first readers of Hebrews, they had faithfully followed Christ for some time, and they even endured severe persecution. You may remember from chapter 10, their property was plundered, some of them were thrown into prison, and all this was real stuff. You know, these were real people who lived in real places and they were beaten and treated horribly for the sake of Christ. And they endured that persecution by the grace of Jesus. But now some time had passed and they were drifting away from Christ. They were not running away. They were just sort of slowly drifting away. They were losing the passion of their first love. They were getting bored with Jesus. They were forgetting the great things that God had done in them and through them and for them by Jesus Christ. They were falling asleep. They were being tempted to walk away from him and go back to Jewish rites and rituals that had been so perfectly fulfilled in Christ that they would soon be abolished. Not long after the letter to the Hebrews was written, the temple was actually destroyed. And from that day to this day, the entire sacrificial system has not been in existence. These people were tempted to walk back to something that was soon to be destroyed because because they were not running the race by grace. And so... They had need to endure. They had need to keep on pressing on in the faith. They had need to cling to Jesus and forsake all other loves. And so the author says in verse 2 that they should fix their eyes on Christ together. Like stare intently at Jesus together and don't let each other uh, put your eyes elsewhere. Just keep looking at Christ. Keep telling one another, look at Christ, look at Christ. In every situation, counsel one another. Fix your eyes on Christ, fix your eyes on Christ. And then in verse 3 it says, don't just look at him, but consider him. And that word there is lagizomai. It means to think seriously about something. It means to calculate. It means to think deeply, to see connections. Look to Christ and think about his way of life. And in this way, you will find strength for your own battle. And you know why? Because Jesus himself ran the very race that he's calling us to run, beloved. Have you ever really stopped to think about that? You are being called on to run a race that your master has already run in your place. He already endured by faith. And now he's seeking to impute his faith from his heart into our hearts. He's seeking to take the faith that characterizes his life and massage it into our lives until his faith is our faith. Until we believe in the Father and trust in the Father to the extent and in the manner that Jesus does. One day, his vision for us is that we would trust God so implicitly that there would be nothing left of fear, of doubt, of apathy, of rebellion, of laziness, of distraction, anything like that. Fix your eyes on me. Think carefully about my way of life. And as you do that, I'm going to massage my faith into your heart until you believe the way that I believe. The first readers of Hebrews had need to endure, and this is why the author was calling upon them to fix their eyes on their great king priest. Please understand, 
The call to fix our eyes upon Jesus is not the call to look to his example and then for us to try to live up in our own strength to what we see him doing. It's not as though God is saying, here, here's your ultimate hero, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to be like him in your own strength. Strive to reach that standard. That is not the call. We are, we are not called to struggle within ourselves to be like Jesus. We are called to look to him, embrace him, and surrender to him, and then he will make us to be like himself. One day, we will all be like Christ. This is the destiny of everybody who believes. If you believe in him, the Father's promise to you is that he will shape you perfectly into his image. But beloved, that's a work that only he can do. So we're being called to struggle to fix our eyes upon him, surrender to him so that he can have his way in us. Some of us are seeking to fix our eyes, but we're not surrendering. We're not letting him have his way in our lives. And beloved, I'm telling you, if you're having a hard time overcoming some sin or letting go of some weight in your life, the key is to stop thinking about the weight or the sin. The key is to fix your eyes on Christ and just surrender. He will do for you which you can never, ever do for yourselves. So as for us, our circumstances are different from the first readers, but the calling upon us is, is exactly the same as theirs. We are, to call, we are to fix our eyes upon Christ, carefully think about him, surrender our hearts to him, embrace his, whole, his, his all-sufficient sacrifice, and then let him have his way in us. This is the only way, beloved, that we'll ever be able to run this race by grace. It's the only way. Only Christ can do this in us. We may suffer with him, but we will also reign with him as we walk by faith. Now, a key part of enduring this race by faith is learning to understand and embrace the discipline of the Lord. So now, beginning in verses five and six, the author is turning our our minds to a, a proverb from Hebrews, or from Proverbs, a saying from Proverbs that he takes out of chapter three. And he begins by asking his first readers and also us a question. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, without going into all the technical details of the Greek language, let me give you my expanded version of this question, which is based on my study of the word. So I'm not just making this up. This is a, a fuller way of, of, the, uh, of expressing the question that the author is asking. He's saying, and have you completely forgotten the encouragement that is seeking to reason with you for your good because you are children of God? Have you forgotten what your father said to you? Have you left aside the persuasive logic of God that's trying to overcome the logic of your flesh so that you'll grow up into him, into the fullness of his son? And then he quotes the words from Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. It's an exact quote. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So let me start with this word son. That word son or plural sons is used 23 times in the book of Proverbs and 15 times in the opening chapters. So it's used so repeatedly. I'm actually in the Proverbs in my personal quiet time right now. And the word son or sons is used so often. It just nails you. I read about six or seven chapters all at once in Proverbs the other day. And, and this, this, the repetition of this word, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son, it just nails you. It nails you. And it, re- it makes you realize that you're dealing with a father who is trying to persuade his children that his wisdom is superior to all other wisdom in this world, whether worldly wisdom or fleshly wisdom. The father is reaching out to us with a heart of love. The father is reaching out to us and trying to help us understand that his ways are the most excellent ways. And so this word of exhortation that reasons with us for our good begins with the loving heart of a father that cries out to his children and says, my son, or you could understand this as my son or my daughter or my child, my child. Beloved, this is the voice of Almighty God speaking. This is the one who spoke and more than 170 billion galaxies came into existence This is the God who causes our sun to rise and fall day by day by day. He is very great. He is very powerful. And he looks at us and says, my child, my precious child. That's how he feels toward us. With this 
as the basis of his words. He goes on then to offer us two exhortations, and you'll see them there in verses 5 and 6. First of all, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, and second, don't grow weary when the Lord has to chastise you. So those are two related things, but distinct things. So let's talk about them one at a time. The wisdom of God is very great, and the speech of God is incredibly valuable. When the Almighty speaks, it is more valuable than all the gold and diamonds in the universe, much less than just on this earth. And so our Father begins by saying to us, listen, when I speak a word to you, especially through my word and by my Holy Spirit, don't just blow it off. Don't set my word aside as though it has little value or no value. When I speak to you, my children, I am investing the purest gold of heaven into your lives. Don't minimize that. Don't lighten that. Don't blow it off. Don't ignore it. Don't walk away from it as though you know better. Don't be arrogant. Don't be haughty. Don't treat me lightly by treating my words lightly. When I speak, listen to what I say. Now the word for discipline here is a a very important one. And I want to take a few minutes to make sure that we understand it because I think the English word is prone to some misunderstanding. I think that when we hear the word, the English word discipline, at least in this context, I think our minds naturally go to the idea of punishment or what might be called corrective discipline. So if if you're saying I had to discipline my child... Generally, what you're saying is you had to punish them, you had to rebuke them, you had to do something to them in response to bad behavior. But the Greek word here is actually built off of a word that means child. So we hear disciple in our word discipline, disciple, discipline. In the Greek speaker's ear, they would first hear the word child, and then they would hear a word that means something like child rearing or parenting. My precious child, do not regard lightly the parenting of the Lord. Do not regard lightly the child-rearing work of the Lord in your life. Please understand what I'm saying, beloved. The, The issue of discipline here is not just corrective discipline where God is coming in to smack you for something that you did that was wrong. The issue of discipline here is a parenting issue. Do not regard the Lord's parenting lightly. It's very important that we understand this. This this does include corrective discipline, but it also includes instructive discipline. So instructive discipline teaches us the way that we should go, and corrective discipline will rebuke us or punish us when we don't go in that way. But even then, the corrective discipline is for our good, right? If your father says, follow this path, because at the end of the path, I have pure gold for you and tons of joy for you. Walk in this way. That's instructive discipline. And then we start to veer to the left and he smacks us a little bit, said, no, no, back into the center. Go forward. Well, that discipline is for our good. It's not for our ill. It's for our joy and not for our sadness. That's for sure. It might be hard in the moment, but the ultimate point is that God is trying to parent us toward the greatest things that he has for us in this life. And so again, we need to hear this verse say, my child, Do not regard lightly the parenting work of the Lord inside your life. The Lord is trying to raise us up into the fullness of the image of Christ. And and in order to do this, we have to receive his words. The only way to grow up in Christ, beloved, to, to know Christ, to grow with Christ, and to go with Christ, the only way to do that is to receive the instruction of the Lord. There is not another way. You can't know God if you don't listen to his words, right? Isn't that right? If you refuse to listen to your father, you can't know your father. If you refuse to receive the words of your father, you can't grow up in your father. If you refuse to receive the words of your father, you can't go out with your father because you're not listening to what he wants you to do and where he wants you to go and how he wants you to do it. It's a simple thing. Don't lightly regard the parenting work of God in your life. It's for your good. It's not always easy, but it's for your good. So then the second exhortation, my child, do not be weary when reproved by the Lord. When the Lord seeks to parent us, sometimes we react by taking his words lightly. I've done it more times than I'd like to admit. Other times we don't react like that, but other times what happens is we get deflated. We get depressed. We grow weary. The Greek word for weary here literally means to dry up or to evaporate. And so the idea here is that our strength kind of evaporates sometimes when we get rebuked. 
And you experience this at a human level too, don't you? When your parents or your boss or some authority in your life rebukes you, sometimes it just makes you, just kind of deflates you. It kind of depresses you, kind of brings you down. And that's the picture here. Sometimes when the Lord rebukes us, we just feel like we can't measure up. We feel like we will never be good enough to walk with him. We feel like we will never grow up in him and be what he wants us to be. We feel like we'll never make it to the end of the race. Sometimes we just flat out feel like quitting. I was telling one of the brothers in the church that some years ago, I said to the Lord one day, this is probably 20 years ago now, I just said to him, Jesus, I, can't, I just can't do this Christian thing anymore. I just can't. It's too hard for me. I can't do it. And my sense was that the Lord said back to me, yeah, well, now you're starting to get it. You can't do this. Only I can do this in you. I said back to the Lord, amen, I get that. I understand, like I knew, like I really did understand. But I said to him, I said, Lord, I know what you're saying, but even with your help, I can't do it. It's just too much, Lord. I can't press on. I can't live this life. I can't overcome all the garbage that I went through in my life and all the the, the devastation that's left in my heart and my mind from almost 10 years of drug addiction and all the things I did and all the things I saw. It's just too much, Lord. I can't do it. I was getting weary, beloved. It's all that was happening. Christ was working in my life and it just felt like too much. And now our Father is saying, my child... My precious child, don't get weary when I rebuke you. I rebuke you because I love you. I rebuke you because I love you. The reason that the Lord parents his children is because he loves his children. And he loves his children with his own heart. So the Lord says to us, I'm going to speak now for a few minutes as if I am the Lord. The Lord is saying to us, my beloved children, I am on your side It's love that causes me to show you the way that you should go even when you don't want to go in that way. You want to go this way? I want you to go that way. I keep showing you. I keep telling you specifically because I love you. Hear my heart, my children. It's love that causes me to call on you to rise up and give your everything to the glory of my name and the good of others and the joy of your own soul as you learn to love my will and walk in my ways. It's love that causes me to parent you and to parent you so much better than any parent on this earth. It's hard sometimes, but it's love that's driving me to guide you in the way that you should go. And when I have to punish you, I want you to remember, my child, that I only chastise people I've already received into my family. When I issue corrective discipline into your life, it's because I've already accepted you into my life. I've already embraced you from the depths of my heart and I'm only trying to bring you in to the depths of my heart. Deep is calling to deep. That's why I'm parenting you. I want to bring you into glorious things that you have never even imagined. I have already wrapped both of my arms around you and I have promised you that I will complete the work that I have began in you and this is why I have to rebuke you from time to time because it's part of my work. My work is not always easy, but it's very, very good. And I have made a sacred covenant with you. I have promised you that I will complete this in you. And I will not break my word. Ever, 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 I will not break my word. I am utterly and eternally committed to you. And for this very reason, I must chastise, discipline, and parent you. So, child, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Embrace my discipline and don't lose heart. I am on your side and I'm doing what I'm doing for your good. Beloved, I hope that we're seeing as God would have us see here today. He's calling on us to lay aside all the weights and sins so that we can run this race with Christ as fast as we can. I'm telling you this week, I mean, as soon as we're done with church, well, I've got appointments today, so maybe, maybe after my appointments. I have a heart to read some things and to get to know Christ better, to grow in Christ more. Tomorrow's my day off and I just plan to sit out on my porch and read some things and draw near to Jesus. I just long to do it. I want to run that race. I want to know Jesus. I want to grow in him. I want to touch him. I want to be touched by him. And when Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday comes, I want to take some tools that are in my hands and go out to a neighborhood that's on my heart and begin sharing the gospel with people. I want to run this race by grace, but if I'm going to do that, I have got got to fight like mad against the weights and sins in my life. They're holding me back. They're holding me back. 
And if I will just come and surrender to Jesus, he will do a work in me that I could not do in myself. That will require him to rebuke me at times, but that's because he loves me, and the same thing goes for you. If you're gonna run this race with Christ, if you're gonna know him together, grow in him together, go with him together, you're gonna have to let him confront you. Lay aside the weights and sins by surrendering to the Lord's discipline. There's another key idea for you. I didn't put it up there, mainly because it just came to me this morning. Lay aside the weights and sins by surrendering to the Lord's discipline. He's on your side. Now, with all this in our hearts and minds, the author now goes on to apply this wisdom to the specific situation of the first readers of Hebrews. And again, their circumstances were pretty different from ours, but the wisdom of God to us is exactly the same as it was to them. This will give us life if we will have ears to hear. So it's kind of like he said, listen, don't reject, don't treat my discipline, don't treat my words lightly, and don't grow weary when I discipline you. He just said that to us, right? And now, in the next verses, he's going to issue some discipline. So we need to listen. We need to have hearts to receive what he has for us. The first part of verse 7 says, It is for discipline, it is for parenting that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or as children. This is an extremely important sentence, so I want to take some time with it. And let me begin by saying a word about this word, endure. This is now the fourth time that this word endure has been used in the letter of Hebrews, and it literally means to remain up under something. So from a Greek mindset, if you're thinking about endurance, it kind of means bearing a weight upon yourself and continuing to bear that weight. Bear that weight and keep on bearing it. That's the idea of endurance in the Hebrew mind. And so the first use of this word was in chapter 10, verse 32, when the author was calling on these people to remember the days when they had endured some very hard trials and some very hard sufferings. In other words, they had already endured by grace, and now he was just telling them, keep on enduring, keep on enduring, keep on enduring by grace. The next time he uses this word is in chapter 12, verse 1, where he tells us to run our race with endurance. You're not in a sprint, you're in a marathon, so run your race and and have a mind that you're going to have to stand up under this weight for a long time, day by day, month by month, year by year. Run your race with endurance, have a a long-term mindset. And then in the next verse, in verse 2, it says that Jesus Christ himself endured because of the joy that was set before him. As I said to you before, beloved, Christ has already endured on our behalf. And now we come to chapter 12, verse 7. And it says that we're to endure specifically because God is treating us as children. Now I know that some of you are carrying some fairly enormous weights in your life. I know that. And at times I have too. The wisdom of the word of God would say that the reason God is requiring you to go through difficult things as a believer is because he is treating you as one of his precious children. It might not be fun, but it's very good news to know that you're having to go through trials and temptations because it means you belong to God. God is treating you as children. Now that word treating, here's a little lesson for you. When you're seriously studying a text of the scripture, don't skip over any words. I almost skipped over this word treating in my study this week because it just seemed like, well, I know what that word means. And I'm so glad that I didn't skip over it because it turns out that this word treating opened up just a treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge for me about what the purpose of God is in, 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 in disciplining us and calling us to endure. So as I looked into this word, I found that the Greek word behind our word treating actually means to bear something or to bring something to an appointed end. So you're talking about picking something up and bearing it to another place. And and because of that, it's often translated offering. So I'm bearing something toward God. I'm offering something to God. That's the word that's being used here. This word has already been used 19 times in Hebrews from chapter 5 to this point. And every single time it refers to an offering, to an offering. I was tempted to read every one of them with you so that you could feel the the weight that's building up before we get to this verse, but I don't want to take the time to do that. So let me just summarize in four categories for you how these 19 words are used. First of all, the word is used to refer to Abel's offering to God. So Abel bore something up to God. He offered something to God, Hebrews 11.4. The same word is used to talk about Abraham offering his son Isaac up to the Lord, Hebrews 11.17. The word is actually used twice in that verse. 
Third, this word is used 11 times to refer to the offerings of the various priests who brought offerings to God for the sins of the people. They bore things to God. They offered it to him. They offered and offered and offered day by day by day for many, many years. They offered things to God. And then finally, this word is used to talk about the five times to talk about the offerings of Jesus in the form of prayer and supplication and then ultimately in the form of his very self as he offered himself up to God as the one all-sufficient sacrifice for sins. So up to this point, beloved, this word has been used 19 times in seven chapters and every time it has meant to offer without exception. And so I think that when we get to this verse, it surely means the same thing here in chapter 12, verse 7. It surely means to say that God is calling us to endure his discipline by faith in Christ because he is offering us up as sons. He's not simply treating us as sons. He's offering us up as sons. I really want to encourage you to meditate on this. There is gold right here. I'm telling you, gold. I was in Memphis this week. And I actually saw this on one of the plane flights and it distracted me for a long time. I sat there in that seat just like stunned. Like, wow, that is a very different meaning than God is simply treating me as a son. God is offering me up as a son. Here's some things that I saw. God the Father is calling us to share in the sufferings of Christ. He's offering up just us up just as he suffered, Christ, offered Christ up so that we might also share in his resurrection life. The Father is calling us to endure opposition from sinners for the sake of the lost, even as Jesus endured these same things for us. The Father is perfecting us into the image of Christ by exposing us to the fire of suffering, by offering us to the flames so that we might be more like him. Our Father is weeding out in us foreign desires from our hearts so that we'll be focused like really focused on his great mission to know him, to grow in him, and to go with him together. Our Father is causing us to walk away from things that Christ has already taken away so that we'll be better conduits for his grace and power in the world. Our Father is preparing us to share in his holiness so that we might have eyes that are wide open to see his glory and mouths that are wide open to sing his praise. Beloved, God is not simply treating us as sons. God is offering us up to himself as sons. We are a fragrant offering to God, by God, through Jesus Christ. He offered up his own beloved son, and now as his sons in Christ, as his daughters in Christ, he offers us up to himself as well. This is really profound. Underneath the discipline of the Lord is this profound connection with Christ as our Father offers us up to himself It is for the sake of God's good parenting that we must endure because God is offering us up to himself as beloved sons and daughters. He wants us to be like Jesus. As we ponder this lofty truth from an earthly point of view, some common sense kind of arguments come to mind and that's what's left in the rest of this chapter. He now just starts leading us to think common sense thoughts about the discipline of the Lord in our lives. Here's a couple of them. First of all, What halfway decent father fails to discipline his children? The only fathers, beloved, who do not discipline their children are bad fathers or absentee fathers or dead fathers like mine. My dad can't parent me because he's dead. The vast majority of living fathers, even if they're horrible at it, they try at least to discipline their children. They try. Every father worth more than a nickel parents his children. So doesn't it just make sense that God, who is the ultimate father, would parent his kids? Doesn't that just make sense? What do you think about a father who won't parent his children? You don't think good thoughts about that person, do you? I don't. What would we think about God if he failed to parent us as well, if he failed to give us instructive discipline and corrective discipline? It's just common sense, beloved. Of course, God should father us. In fact, if you'll look at the text, it says that if anyone claims to know the Lord and yet never experiences the discipline of the Lord, that person does not know the Lord. One of the signs that you're in Christ is if you're disciplined by Christ. Kids, you might not find it fun when your parents discipline you. You may not like them for it, but I'll tell you, you should rejoice in God because it means that you're inside the family. 
If somebody walks up to you at lunch today in some restaurant and tries to discipline you, they're going to arrest that person. But if your parents try to discipline you, it means that you're in the family. You're in. And if you have parents who don't discipline you at all, the Lord says, you're illegitimate children and not true sons. Not true sons. Parenting is a normal, natural, necessary part of life in any family. And when parenting isn't there, we say, whoa, something's wrong with this family. And in the same way, parenting is a normal and natural and necessary part of life with God. We cannot know God and grow in God and go with God unless he parents us. So don't treat his words lightly and don't get weary when he's trying to parent you. It means that you're in the family, beloved. That's what it means. Receive it with joy because it means you belong to God. You belong to God. That's just a common sense kind of argument. Second practical thought is this, and you'll see that in the text. Most of us were disciplined by our earthly fathers, and in the end, we appreciated it and respected them for it. At the time we were receiving discipline, we may have turned our heart away, but this word for respect here, it means that our hearts are turned toward our fathers. Eventually, as we grow up and understand more about life and understand more about our parents and understand more about the world and understand what they were trying to do in our lives, we might not think they were perfect, but we praise God that they tried to discipline us. There were days that my dad, especially my stepdad, just got in my face and in the moment I hated him for it. God saw and he knows there was just just deep vitriolic hatred in my heart toward my stepdad, but I praise God that he stood up to me and would not back down. I respect him for it. I honor him for it. If he didn't do that to me, I might not be standing here. I was involved in things that could have killed me. And in some ways, my stepfather saved my life. He was not a perfect dad, but when I look back, I respect him for trying. Respect him. And even his brokenness, I think, wow, even as a broken man, he still did pretty good. I respect him. Same thing with God, beloved. Same thing with God. Should we not then, knowing that God is a perfect Father, should we not willingly submit our hearts to Him who can give us life? He's not only the Father of our flesh, but He's the Father of our spirit. That's what I think it means when it says that He's the Father of spirits. I just think it means that He's not only the one who created our our body, but He also created our soul. He is the ultimate Father. And he's a perfect father, so why would we not willingly and gladly submit to him? Beloved, it's just common sense that we should do so. And if you'll think about your own parents, you'll see that. Even if you had bad parents, you still know others who had good parents. And the best parents you know of are the dimmest, dimmest reflection of the parenting heart of God. If we should respect them, how much more should we respect him? Indeed, our earthly fathers The scripture says, use the brief time that they had, or more literally it says the few days. They just had a few days with us. Might have seemed like forever when it was happening. Kim, I was remembering a a thing you said to me the other day. What'd you say? When you're parenting, the days are long, but the time is short. The days seem so long, but the time goes by so fast. Just had a few, few days. And they tried to parent us as it seemed best to them. They were only human beings. They were limited in their perspective in many ways. They were sinful, they were broken, they were hurtful to us at times. They did the best, but they were only, they did their best, but they were only men. But our Heavenly Father, always, without ever failing, always disciplines us for our good. In fact, He disciplines us for our very best, that we might share in His nature. It's just unbelievable to me that this is His goal. I parented my daughter Rachel so that she could have a decent life on this earth and mainly in the hope that she would love Jesus on this earth. My heavenly father parents me that I might be like him. My heavenly father parents me that his holiness might clothe me until I share in his holiness. Our father is perfectly holy, beloved, and the aim of his parenting in our lives is to make us holy as he is holy. He is preparing us to enter into profound communion with him. And in order to do that, just think about your earthly relationships. The thing that makes earthly relationships difficult is that there's sin between us. There are blockages between our communion. Well, God, through his discipline, is trying to remove all the blockage, all of it, get it all out, so that when we see Jesus face to face, we will forever be in perfect communion with him. 
His parenting might not always be fun, but it's very, very good because he's preparing us to have fellowship with him. He is offering us up to himself through Christ that we might have a fullness of joy. As Jesus said in John 15, he said, I tell you these things so that your joy will be absolutely to the rim, packed over the top full. I want you to have joy like a joy you've never, ever experienced in your life before. That comes through the discipline of the Lord. There's not another way. Our fathers had good intentions, but our heavenly Father has great and flawless intentions. And since we know that this is true, since we know he has designed such good things for us through discipline, shall we not submit to the Father of spirits and live, truly, truly live? Beloved, it's only common sense that we should. It's only common sense that we should let God challenge our own sovereignty over our lives so that he can have his way in our lives. It's not fun in the moment, but it's good. So God's discipline is glorious, but aren't you glad in verse 11 that the author ends with a little dose of reality? Haven't you felt what he says in verse 11? He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen. You have permission to say this is not fun. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Being parented and especially being chastised by the Lord is not fun, but it's good. For the moment, it is uncomfortable and upsetting rather than joy-giving. But later, the pain gives way to spiritual fruit that is so satisfying that we forget the pain. It's like a woman in childbirth. In fact, the word for pain here is used of women in childbirth in another place in the Scripture. It's like a woman who's giving birth to a child and there is enormous pain involved in birthing a child. But as that child is born and begins to grow and the mother raises the child and gets to know the child and loves the child and invests in the child, it's like the pain never happened. The beauty of this life was worth all the pain that it took to bring about this life. Kim and I got to spend some time with our daughter Rachel this weekend. She's 19 years old now, 19 years old now. And Christ, in the last three or four or five weeks, has just grabbed her heart so significantly. She keeps telling me over and over again, Daddy, you don't understand. I love Jesus. I love him. He's captured my heart, Daddy. You don't understand. And I just say, oh, man. I don't care what pain it took to raise Rachel. The joy of that moment is worth all of it. It's worth all of it. Same thing with the discipline of the Lord, beloved. It's not fun at the time. And we would be lying if we said we actually enjoyed getting smacked by God. But it's good. It's good. It's good. We submit to it because there's fruit in it. The best example of a person who endured extraordinary pain in order to inherit eternal joy is Jesus himself. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But don't take this to mean that it was fun for him to bear the cross. It was not fun for him. Meditate on Gethsemane and you'll see it was not fun for Jesus to take up his cross. It was painful when the father offered up his only begotten son, but he helped his son by allowing him to sample the joy that later he would feast upon. And indeed now, this very day, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God and he's feasting on now what he tasted in those days. And the father does the same thing to us. He will call us to endure many things for the sake of his parenting in our lives. And along the way, he gives us samples of the, f- the feast that is in heaven for us. He gives us foretastes of what later we will enjoy with a very, very great level of, of joy. These samples are not worthy to be compared to the feast that is being prepared for us, but they are little tastes that say, hang in there and endure because your suffering is not for nothing. People in the world, people without Christ, they suffer for nothing, for no good reason. There's, there's, it's not heading anywhere. For those who fix their eyes on Christ, beloved, your suffering has profound meaning. God is using it to shape you into his image so that one day you might feast with him in a very, very great way. Some days, when I draw close to Jesus by the word and by his spirit, I experience his presence so just intimately, that I feel like I could almost reach out and touch him. Just this very morning, I was sitting in my dining room reading Proverbs um, 10, 11, and 12, and there were a couple times where the Spirit just spoke so clearly into my life, so intimately into my life, I literally felt like I could go like this and I would touch Jesus' face. 
that no matter how intimate the, the experiences we have with Christ on this earth are, they're only the smallest foretaste of what's coming when we actually visibly see Christ face to face and enter into communion with him forever. And what I'm saying this morning, what the Lord is saying this morning, is all of his discipline in our lives is designed to get us ready for that moment. It's designed to get us ready to see Jesus Christ and to enjoy him forever. So embrace the pain because joy is coming. Embrace the discipline of the Lord because soon enough, soon enough, in the twinkling of an eye, All of the glory and all of the joy of the Lord will be yours. Beloved, this is your destiny in Christ. I began this message by saying that in order to run the race, we must fight our sin by grace. And I just want to quickly now add this. Most often, grace for the race comes in the form of the discipline of the Lord. You say, Lord, I need grace to run this race. It might not come in the form that you want it. When you see the discipline for the Lord of the Lord in your life, you have to think this is grace being given to me that I might run the race, that I might know Christ and grow in Christ together with other people and that I might go with Christ into this world. So my prayer, beloved, is that this morning we would not harden our hearts to the Lord, but that like loving children, that our hearts would be soft and supple before our Father and we would allow him to have his way in us. And let's pray for that now. Father, I love your tender touch. I love your gentle word that sometimes has to sting and sometimes has to really confront us but always has our best in mind. Father, there are enough people in this room there's just no way to know how how many different weights are represented here and how many different sins are represented here. And I am sure that the discipline of the Lord is functioning in all of our lives. And I pray, I simply pray that our hearts would be not, not be hard toward what it is that you're trying to do in us. I pray that our hearts would be willing to treat your words with honor the way that they ought to be treated. I pray that our spirits would not grow weary when, we, when you rebuke us because you've just told us that it's a sign of your presence in our lives. Father, I pray that right now, right this very moment, decisions would be made to say yes to you. Right now, I trust that you're confronting some of us about weights and sins. And I pray for hearts to receive what you would do. We love you, Father. We love you so much for your work in our lives. We love you so much for the hope that is in Christ for us, that you will complete this work all the day, all the way to the day when Jesus Christ returns. Father, we love you, we hope in you, and we rise now to give our praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.